Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. From our 2023 Spring Conference, Advancing Health Equity Through Alternative Payment Models, we were pleased to have the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network's Health Equity Advisory Team co-chairs, Dr. Marshall Chin from the University of Chicago and Karen Dale from AmeriHealth Caritas. The moderator was Michael Patwell, Principal Business Advisor with EdFX and the chair of Weedy's Payment Models Workgroup. Uh, looking forward right now, I'm very honored to introduce both co-chairs of the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network Health Equity Advisory Team. Quite a big name, but we call it HCP Land Heat. Our first co-chair has spoken at Weedy previously. Uh, Dr. Marshall Chin is a professor of healthcare ethics at the University of Chicago. And Dr. Chin will be joined by HCP Land Heat's second co-chair, Karen Dale, the market president for AmeriHealth Caritas. So the presentation today will focus on the advancing health equity through alternate payment models. And we'll have a very free form, uh, please, Add any questions you have along the way in chat, and Michael and I will monitor that. But this is going to be a very uh, free-flowing, as you, as I mentioned already, uh, uh, Marshall, well, Dr. Marshall. Uh, I, I can't stop calling doctors doctors. So, but Marshall uh, has presented to Weedy before uh, quite extensively, and we felt this time we're just going to make it a conversation. So, I'm going to pass it on uh, to both Marshall and Karen. And with the first question, um, the uh, if, if everybody would go to HCP Land's website, you'll see that there's a great um, guidance paper that was put out called Advancing Health Equity Through APMs, right? So through alternate payment models. Um, it's it's a, a roadmap, I would say. I've, I've uh, referenced it multiple times, uh, but it's just a great website and a great document that hopefully we'll, we'll go through a little bit in, in, in a few questions here. So um, I'll start off and, and both please uh, co-chairs, you know, join in uh, as, as you want. Um, the work at HEAT, right, the Health Equity uh, Advisory Team, um, do you have any upfront success stories or anything that, you know, since your inception, uh, some upcoming initiatives, any meetings or anything at, at large that you just want to throw out that maybe the members of Weedy could uh, attend uh, moving forward? Sure. So, um not going to assume that everyone knows much about the work, even though I'm sure um, Marshall has given good information previously. To ground us, you know, we see that APMs give us an opportunity to incentivize care in a way that makes things more equitable for who are served across different payers. And so in grounding ourselves around this work, one of the things I'm very proud of is that we said, this is not about starting with the provider or the payer. We must be grounded in our work in terms of who is being served, right? And so we're decidedly taking a person-centered approach so that we know that the person being served, that patient or uh, member enrollee, that the value-based care or the alternative payment model being utilized is not going to create harm. It's gonna do good by helping to improve health outcomes satisfaction, right? Decrease the burden they may experience as they work to navigate through the healthcare system. And so with that, our expectation in terms of part of what happens is that they're being treated with more respect and dignity by providers and by the, uh, through the healthcare system. 
it's important to kind of make space to understand that point because equity requires that people get what they need, right? That we're not just creating systems to focus on the outcomes a health system wants to, to have, but rather where's that intersection occurring between the people being served and the health delivery system supporting them. And so really proud of the work, which is on the website that was mentioned in terms of our theory of change and how we see individuals and families, providers, payers, purchasers, and providers like really connecting around a set of guidance that helps to address equity and improve health outcomes through care delivery redesign, you know, payment incentives and structures, and performance management, because we do want to be sure we know whether what we are putting in place is working. In 2021, we delivered guidance about health equity design elements that are really important for us to all be grounded on, especially across payers, so that we are oriented to how we increase uh, the, the outcomes and the patient member experience. And good work was done there. I think we got a lot of good feedback from that. Uh, the core elements were around, you know, reimbursement for care delivery, design, redesign um, the expectations that care delivery requirements need in order for them to be successful, and certainly data and management uh, and measurement, which is always a, a stickier point. So we did the design elements in 2021. In 2022, we focused on social risk adjustment, uh, which different than clinical risk adjustment is looking at what are all those health-related social factors that are associated with poor health. Um, and looking at you know, the demographic information, how does that get factored in? How do you get those reliable sources of information about what those social needs are, et cetera? And why that one is important to equity is because we know that in less resourced communities, we're going to see a lot more social issues that are increasing the complexity of the medical conditions and the providers who are taking care of those patients are going to have a disproportionate burden of things that they need to do in order to support that person's health and well-being. And so we incorporated a number of elements in terms of the social risk adjustment to hopefully get more providers to want to participate in it, um, look at how care can be transformed by having extended care teams, um, and how we can help providers to who have historically treated uh, less resourced communities to have what they need in order to treat them in a way that produces better outcome. Now, always acknowledging that social risk adjustment was not going to be the end all, you know, to everything that other structures and things would need to change to create a fertile ecosystem for better outcomes. But we believe that when it's applied in communities and with providers, it certainly can give them the kinds of funds that they need in order to be financially sustainable as they take care of people with more risk. And then finally this year, before I turn to Marshall, um, we are focused on community partnerships and using a theory of change You know that says, Look, these secondary drivers, right, that happen in the healthcare delivery continuum are really important. And that we must not think that just the healthcare delivery system can solve for that when there are capable community based organizations with skills, trust, uh, which is a really important component that can make sure that when they're part of the delivery system and reimburse for the value that they bring 
now we have a more holistic system taking care of people and their needs. And so really excited to work on addressing issues such as how do we get shared governance in these partnerships? How do we address some of the power dynamics? How do we create mechanisms that acknowledge the marginalization and racism that has occurred? Um, how do we build trust just between the payer and the CBOs, right? Um, how do we support them around the learning that they may need to operate effectively with some of the things that we are regulated around or have as expectations from the states? So lots of good work happening as we are now interviewing the community-based organizations, getting their perspectives and point of view to help us to create the guidance going forward. And this time we hope to not just do guidance, but hold, you know, webinars and do it in a more uh, multifaceted way to generate interest and engagement. Marshall? Yeah, thanks very much, Karen. And thank you, Michael, for, for inviting us to this panel. Uh, I'm actually going to do a, even some more uh, level setting just to make sure that everyone sort of knows where we're coming from. Um, so CMS, the so Centers for Medicare, Medicaid Services, they have a healthcare payment learning and action network. This is a group of like two to 300 of major stakeholders, broad, diverse stakeholders, payers, there are consumer groups, there's provider groups, healthcare labor organizations, uh, this federal agency folks, pretty broad group. And the overall mission of this healthcare payment learning and action network is to advance the progression from fee-for-service payment to alternative payment models. So even as recently as maybe four or five years ago, there wasn't a lot of work done on equity by this land. And about a year ago, the, the land decided to create a health equity advisory team to specifically think about what can be done to further advance uh, the promotion of equity within alternative payment models. Sometimes I think there's like this magical thinking in our field where we say, well, you know, value-based payment or alternative payment models, well, inherently better than fee-for-service. And so things will sort of magically work out better for outcomes and value and, and, and equity. And, and I think the, the answer is not necessarily so. And so this, this health equity advisory team this really his mission is to be intentional about equity. So thinking about well, what can be done in the design and implementation of alternative models to increase the likelihood that there's a good result regarding equity. It, very importantly, Karen mentioned there's a model of change that, uh, again, sometimes you say, well, alternative pay models, you know, sounds kind of abstract and, uh, you know, vague. Uh, when it comes down to it, um, we have to be explicit about, well, what are the mechanisms by which an alternative model can have a result, whether it's outcomes or equity? And in particular, with the equity lens, uh, where do we need to emphasize and, and particularly intentionally design to make sure that you know, there is an equitable result? And as Karen mentioned, we there's, a, there's like a, a one slide in, in the document that Mike mentioned, this uh, technical guide. Uh, you know, it's like about a 25, 30-page document, but there's like one one page, one slide, which is like, um, you know, the, the model in a nutshell. And as Karen mentioned, really the core are three components, payment, care, delivery systems, and then performance measurement. And then there are a variety of levers around that. And as Karen said, that um, we've had a great start that um, um, it's interesting that the, I think the other thing to emphasize is that it really is multi-stakeholder, uh, both the land as well as this health equity advisory team. Um, you know, my sense is that everyone thinks that someone else has the power. Well, you know, providers think that the payers have the power. 
providers say, well, you know, we can't do anything without the health plans, you know, playing ball. And, you know, in, in reality, you know, they're all right that, you know, everything has to align. So you'll see like um, the documents that Karen mentioned, there are um, recommendations um, and a lot then becomes very specific for, well, you know, if you're a payer, here's what you need to do. If you're a health plan, here's what you need to do. If you're a healthcare delivery organization, here's what you need to do. If you're the community or community-based organization, here's what you need to be thinking about. So, um, you know, we've been at it for a little more than a year. I think we've made a, a lot of progress. We have a long way to go. Um, but I think we've been excited with, with how things are going. And again, I appreciate this opportunity to share some of this work. No, that's great. And, and thank you, Michael, for dropping the link to that 25-page document, which I've read multiple times. And, and you've already gone through a number of the great visuals, you know, so the building bridges to person-centered home uh, care, and then the theory of change where you had the 14 elements. And, and according to you, Karen, that was designed in 21, but then it's been expand, expanded, right? And in 22, you said you added the elements on social risk adjustment, which uh, is that in that document? I, or is that a new possibility of a new document coming in the future? Oh, we did publish guidance on social risk adjustment. That's, okay. that's also on the, the website. Okay, so we'll, we'll drop that in the link if, if we can. And then I, I love the whole connection to the community, uh, the CBOs. I, I, I believe, you know, a number of states that I've worked with. Uh, I know, Marshall, you, you spoke about Oregon's work and how they've infused that into their value-based payment, uh, alternate payment model work. Uh, the state of New York, uh, their first uh, disrupt uh, that they ran from 14 to 2020, um, tried to uh, include CBOs. Uh, there was supposed to be a, a focal point and it really didn't work in the, you know, the retrospective review. Uh, so they're looking to correct that with their district uh, 2.0, the delivery system reform uh, incentive program um, with CMS. Uh, so I, I, I believe uh, ACP land heat is all over this as far as advisory. So um, the definitions, I, I know you, you, we've already dropped a few and, and thank you, uh, Marshall, for uh, you know, grounding us in for some of the folks on the on the call that may not understand or or uh, know about HCP land. Um, but you know, what would you what would you like to see happen? You know, we've, we've already seen multiple years of great work coming out of Heat. Uh, but what would you like to see? You know, what's when you're bringing both the value based care and the health equity together? You know, what what do you think the end goal for Heat is? I'll start on this one, and then Karen, please, please chime in. Uh, I'm actually going to start with what you said about definitions. That uh, again, this is some, some level setting. So at the very beginning, like the, our, the health equity advisory team looked at a variety of different definitions, and then ended up picking um, and adapting the U.S. Uh, Healthy People 2030 definition, which talks about uh, enabling everyone to have a, a fair and just opportunity to maximize their health and addressing the various barriers that prevent that from happening. The addition is that the, the, the committee specifically added the, the need to address structural racism, uh, the sense that, that um, one of the main drivers of inequities over time have been uh, a variety of, of the results of structural racism, both how structural racism has led to uh, economic inequality, differences in housing and education, employment, uh, with this accompanying health effects, as well as how, like within specifically healthcare, uh, racism has led to a two-tier system, um, separate systems of care, underfunding uh, of um, a lot of the facilities that that uh, serve marginalized populations and all. Uh, so explicitly calling out that we need to address those. Yeah, Asking your question more directly about like the ultimate vision, 
Well, you know, I think like, um, you know, the vision is sort of a, a world in which everyone does maximize uh, uh, their health, that we don't have a system uh, where that um, um, there are just tremendous barriers to people uh, being able to uh, address the medical and social needs that, that drive uh, health outcomes, uh, that clinicians and staff, they, they practice in settings which are tailored to meet the needs of the community. As, as Karen importantly mentioned, there is a, a true authentic partnership with communities to, because in some ways, you know, in many ways, really communities, they know best, you know, what 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 their needs are and what the solutions are in terms of how to tailor care for, for their care. And that also then that uh, it's all aligned in terms of like the, the payment and business case that the payment systems support that types of care delivery systems that can adequately and do a great job of addressing a, a person's medical and social needs to lead to the best possible outcomes, to lead to um, health equity for all. You know, and this, this is a world then where, where all of us and all of our children, all of our grandchildren can maximize their health potential. Thank you, Marshall. I want to build on some of the components that Marshall touched on. So um, it's a woman, Rosalind Brock. She's a nationally recognized civil rights, health policy, and equity advocate. And she said, the United States was founded on the principle of all men and women being created equal. But America is still a country of deep gaps, the employment gap, the healthcare gap, the justice gap. So here we are today in the legacy of our founders to cross that great bridge. The healthcare delivery system encompasses so many gaps. And if we don't get them addressed, it's not just a matter of let's do good. There is a real cost when we are not addressing things in a way that increases equity. Um, and so that's that's where we find ourselves. It is not something that we can't solve for. We must make a decision to make steps in that direction. Again, I think CMS is thinking and CMMI are thinking way ahead in terms of the work that is being done today to set that foundation to move us forward. If I were to add to what I think what Marshall said about what do I want to see happen, part of this is to acknowledge, acknowledge the historic harms that have occurred. Without that, I don't know that you see that communities are going to trust what we describe as our good intentions. We also need to stop blaming people, right, for the system that we have designed to get exactly the outcome we are receiving, right? So it's not about blaming someone in all our deficit-based language around, you know, underserved and, uh, you know, we designed a system that didn't enrich these communities with the types of resources they needed to live, live healthy and whole lives and have an experience of flourishing and thriving, right? So we've got to think about this in the larger context as well, not that APMs again solves everything, but we have to at least take a view that more is needed to create a cohesive system that helps individuals to achieve health equity as the definition was stated. Spot on. And, and thank you. I, I, we do need to acknowledge, we need to document, you know, so that when we're looking to have performance measures, part of the theory of change, you need to have a baseline, right? So I think it's important work that 
the Heat team is doing as far as, you know, acknowledging that. And then to the, um, you know, on the barrier side, there, there's been that national dialogue, right, around the um, structured racism and oppression. Is, is there any way you can discuss those barriers for the membership here and how they are affecting, you know, that proper health care in the country for all, for everybody, so everybody has that equitable uh, health outcomes? Sure. So um, I'm going to use an example that many people are aware of and how and I'll share how it ties to health outcomes that we're seeing. So for decades, right, at least starting in around the 1930s, low income and minority communities were cut off. Right. You know, redlining, literally maps were made and circles and shapes were made around certain communities. And for those communities, there was a decision made that no investment. We're not putting grocery stores there. We're not. We're not. We're not going to nourish that community in order for it to, to to thrive and do well. Right. In fact, in communities where somehow, through persistence and a number of things, those communities did figure out a way to do well, we know that they were destroyed because that the intention was not for them to do well. So they were burned, they were looted, all of those things, right? So all these years later, all these years later, right, we see that these same neighborhoods suffer from reduced wealth, greater poverty, lower life expectancy, a much higher incidence of chronic disease. We saw during the pandemic, those communities fared so much worse, right? And that they have always had more issues with behavioral health in terms of more mental health. But then during the pandemic, it set them back decades, right? And so the zip code in terms of those previously redlined communities continues to be the biggest predictor of health outcomes for people. And they get trapped in that because if you are living there going to a school that's not well-resourced, you have more health issues, more behavioral health issues. How do you break out of that without a level of investment that takes care of all those decades of what didn't happen? We haven't seen that happen often enough in our country to help to stem the tide. And there are absolute real health outcomes in terms of vulnerability due to poverty that creates like this ceiling, right, of what is able to be accomplished in those communities. And the providers who are working in those communities to try to improve health outcomes are certainly experiencing this undue burden of trying to figure out how to help their patients to be healthy. And so that's all coming back to what is woven into the fabric of this country around racism and oppression. Yeah, I'd like to build upon Karen's points and make, make two, two, two points in particular. One is that that we have to be honest with with ourselves and and, and with history. So, uh, Karen is saying, for example, that like this history of, of redlining, we, we can't ignore that. I mean, it's reality. I'll, I'll give you another story that like um, May is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and uh, some of you may have heard the story that um, um, you may be familiar with Scholastic. That when you were a kid, there there was like the Scholastic is the company that has the books that you can you know order, and they, you have a little sheet at home. You order the books. And I think if uh, the people, young children now, they may uh, see that Scholastic still exists. There's a story recently where uh, there's a, a Japanese American um, author who wrote a children's book uh, that it was a love story. It was about her grandparents 
who happened to be um, internees in the 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 the, the uh, internment camps during World War II, the concentration camps. And um, so it's children's books, a uh, love story. And in the author's notes, she had like an explanation. Well, you know, this was, you know, uh, an example of racism, uh, the 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 forced relocation uh, and internment of, of Japanese-Americans during World War II in these concentration camps. And so the um, scholastic said, well, you know, um, uh, we'll um, add you to our list to distribute your book, which is a huge deal, of course, for, for an author, if you delete the reference to racism in your um, um, author's notes. And, you know, to the author's credit, she she held her guns and didn't do that. And um, um, so in a lot of publicity now. But as an example of like, if, if we can't um, discuss this and acknowledge uh, what has happened, or we use euphemism, so like this euphemism relocation camp in terms of instead of internment camp or concentration camp, um, you know, we're never going to get there in terms of, you know, really addressing the issues in, in detail. So one is, I think, um, you know, Karen's talking about having an honest look at things, and critical for developing trust with communities. Um, the second point um, I'd like to emphasize here um, is that uh, when, you know, unfortunately, we're in an era where where there are politicians who will use race as a divisive element. When you talk about the core issues, though, there is um, the majority of Americans um, support things like again the, the definition of equity, you know, a fair and just opportunity for, for everyone to have health. Um, people understand that, you know, we want everyone's children to have a good education, good housing, um, good health care, good outcomes. Um, so in practice, you know, there is a, a, a lot of a, a cohesion and common agreement upon these communal goals. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us to keep an eye on the prize regarding um, health outcomes, health equity, um, this fear and just opportunity, and um, you know try to you know ignore the noise and, and to um, you know not fall into a trap of of um, of politicians who, for self-aggrandizement and power, um, are trying to divide people. Well, <clears throat> on that point, uh, we, we do have a question coming in uh, from our chat, and it's from um, Michael Phillips. Michael Phillips is heading up a subgroup uh, with CAQH. Um, that's the uh, <clears throat> uh, Council for uh, Affordable Quality Healthcare. And their responsibility is, you know, defining and, and uh, pr promoting the operating rules for the transactions that are going between payers and providers. Um, Michael's question is, um, and I'll paraphrase here, Michael, you wrote a book and God bless you. Um, <clears throat> he's saying, um, how will we avoid incentivizing lower achievement or quality benchmarks that sometimes arise when engaging traditionally underserved populations? And he says, in other words, how do you avoid the perpetuation of disparities by dividing benchmarks for underserved and well or overserved populations? Uh, so I guess his question is driving at, you know, if we're going to set these uh, building bridges and the patient-centered care, but we're really focused on measuring disparities for the underserved, you know, will there be an opposite effect? And hopefully I paraphrase that well, Michael Phillips, but um, any comments to that question? Yeah, I'll start on this one, and Karen, uh, please add, this is um, a complicated question, and I think now we're going to start to dive into, like, details and mechanisms and, 
you know, inside the black box? That's a great question, Michael. Um, so, you know, um, standards don't arise out of the blue, uh, that they come from human decisions, humans being us collectively, you know, in terms of uh, the industry, the plans, uh, the government, the private payers, uh, what the public can tolerate. And you're right that you could design a system that, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, is, you know, very two-tiered and can lead to uh, unintended, um, even worsening of, of results. Or you can be thoughtful and design things in a way that are, that are more likely to lead to better results. So, for example, you know, you have a variety of choices regarding uh, what you reward as your benchmark, you know, whether it is attainment of an absolute standard, whether it is a attainment of an absolute standard in comparison to peers, whether you're rewarding improvement over time, whether you're rewarding an actual reduction in disparities between a more and less advanced population, or all or combinations all of the above. Uh, for example, some of the um, oh, ESRD paid performance programs have used like a, a variety, you know, of these uh, a little bit of, of each of those, you know, type of, of mechanisms. Um, so again, the, I think the, the 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 key principle here is to be explicit, uh, have a transparent discussion. And then try to be intentional regarding the design to advance health equity. I think related to your question, let's start to set this up. Um, so, it's, so it's really then how then like the, the performance metrics then lead to trying to incentivize the changes to the care system that are then supported by payment mechanisms that um, enable those type of care transformations. We're talking about payment just for a moment. You know, I like to simplify it into saying like, well, there's three basic buckets of levers you have. One is like um, sort of maybe implied by your question, Michael, um, essentially pay for performance of like, you know, you're going to have some type of metric or some criteria that you're going to reward somehow if you meet that metric. The second was what I would call um, infrastructure funding or upfront funding. So things, we have things like uh, capitation, global payments, per member per month, bundle payments. These all provide some level of upfront funding, which you can use for infrastructure to um, uh, for equity uh, related activities, whether it is like information technology to better collect um, social drivers of health data and link to the community resources, whether it's uh, funding um, care coordination, team-based care, community health workers, which typically aren't funded by fee-for-service uh, as examples. Uh, so, you know, design, how you sort of design those upfront payments and try to encourage the flow to equity lit activities against an intentional um, activity. And then the third um, bucket is uh, what Karen mentioned earlier, um, uh, risk adjusting payment for social risk. Well, I'll just sort of stop there and again, just like, we're starting to put the puzzle pieces together. And Karen, please, please add on and add additional details and other pieces. Yeah, thank you, Marshall. We are not intending to have different standards. We are not intending to have different standards. What we're saying though, is what Marshall so eloquently explained is there are additional supports needed to get to those quality outcomes. So the quality outcome is the quality outcome, right? If we want things like, you know, um, equal rates of, um, you know, if we think about HEDIS measures, for example, that we want the same rates of annual well-child exams as across all payers and populations, that doesn't change. What we're acknowledging is that the provider who is working in a less resourced community where there is high levels of medical and social complexity, that we have to put systems and structures in place to bring them up to a point that they can perform 
against that. And, and Marshall talked about some of the mechanisms, payment mechanisms that can be used. The standard is still the standard. We're not saying that people whose race, ethnicity, and language belong to a less represented group, their providers are measured on a different standard. We're saying those providers need other opportunities and supports in order to perform well against the standard for the complexity of the population they're serving. Great, well, thank you. Uh, hopefully, Michael, that answered your question. As I mentioned, uh, Michael's spearheading <clears throat> um, utilizing existing transactions that go between providers and payers every day, whether it's the eligibility uh, checks that happen from a, a provider's office uh, to a payer. And now we're actually uh, focused in this second subgroup um, on how providers at the point of care can identify to a payer or CMS or state Medicaid, you know, through these transactions that they're submitting claims, how can they identify social determinants of health uh, or health equity um, through codification. So Michael's team is, is working hard on that. Uh, we're starting with definitions. Uh, here at Weedy, we also have a payment models work group that I head. And then also we have a few folks on the phone. I see Nancy Spector uh, is on. She's heading our health equity work group. And we're trying to work together, you know, in, in sort of how HCP land and heat are together, you know, the work group for the payment models and also the health equity work group. We're trying to work together along with CAQH, which is what we consider a sister uh, organization, along with Da Vinci, who is also working on standardization in order so that the information can flow from a provider to a payer, from a payer to a provider, and more in this new world, I believe, which is then out to the CBOs. I think that's something that, you know, can be addressed in the next short term where we bring in these community-based organizations that are so key in these uh, underserved areas where providers need that extra um, incentive or extra extra resources to make sure that we're giving uh, equitable health. So I'll um, end off with a, a couple of, I didn't see any question. All right, thank you, Michael's thanking you for the question here. So <clears throat> I know we wanted to talk about some of the alternate payment models in action. Um, do you guys have any examples that you could share with the team in, in our in our last few minutes here? Um, you know, within how they're working in action today, or how we're monitoring that. Sure, Marshall. Did you want to start, or you want me to? Um, let's take this one first, and then I'll I'll, I'll re reinforce. Sure. So I'll talk a bit about AmeriHealth Caritas where we firmly believe that taking an integrated approach to value-based programs will help those we serve. And so we have been hard at work, hard at work, uh, implementing value-based programs uh, broadly. We have a value-based program for our medical legal partnership. We have one with a housing provider who uh, provides housing for people with mental health disorders with a lot of supports. Um, we have value-based for one of our medical respite programs. So, and we're always evolving, right? So for example, this year we added behavioral health measures, knowing that the collective trauma um, experienced in our communities coming out of COVID caused a lot of harm. And we've seen certainly a, a much higher rate at which their new diagnoses of behavioral health conditions, substance use disorder, et cetera. So we've really focused on that and are helping our providers to focus on mental health 
in their provider dashboard. So sharing, right, more information in that regard and encourage them, encouraging them and incentivizing them to do more screening. Um, so I'll walk through a couple of examples. Uh, one other thing to mention is the power and of data exchange, which I just heard Michael kind of touch on. So where there is a health information exchange in a state or jurisdiction, it's so important for that to be a good investment and to work hard to get as many providers as possible connected to it. It does a couple of things. It helps the care delivery system and care team to see things, the same view of what is going on with a patient from the payer side, a member, right? And the payers benefit as well from access to that system. The other piece is it helps to improve the member slash patient experience because everyone's not asking them the exact same question over and over again. And if you have a really robust HIE that has the, the ability to store like images and all kinds of rich information, both clinically and socially, it's even better because then we're all working from the same page and we have a much better opportunity, you know, based on alerts and the information in the system to cohesively act to help that patient uh, member to do better. Um, so we've the measures that we added around behavioral health were depression screening and follow-up for adolescents and adults. Uh, the percentage of members who are screened is part of how we then incentivize a provider based on their panel and the diagnosis we see. Um, the fact that they follow up on a positive screen or refer that to us. Uh, we look at things like, you know, making sure that the PHQ-9 monitoring depression symptoms uh, is done. Depression remission or response is another really good measure. So all of these things give us indicators. The equity piece comes in when we also then look at that information on a member level and say, so if we look at race, ethnicity, and language, do are we seeing any gaps and disparities? And how do we then create systems and supports to address that? Um, we have a wonderful um, portfolio of value-based around uh, maternity care, because we know that uh, you know black and brown people, right? Uh, Pregnancy-related mortality rates are three times higher than that for compared to whites. And so we have a bundles for babies program, um, which has had positive results. When we do launch a program, though we have the bones of the program being similar, we recognize the importance that healthcare is local. So we do have the capability to then add in measures that may be specific to, that are highlighting disparities in a specific market so that we you know, can incentivize providers more for that. For example, there are markets where sexually transmitted infections were higher and really important to address that. So we can incentivize providers more specifically for that or you know, whatever other issue might be highlighted in a specific market. Um, and we've seen improvement because we're always looking at tracking improvement market over market, provider over provider. Uh, so we've seen improvement in the timeliness of prenatal care, chlamydia screening, syphilis screening in the third trimester. Um, and we share the information broadly with providers about what is working, encourage them to work with each other uh, to learn in terms of best practices. Um, we have bundles for babies, which is another episode model focused on that we use that episode model in other areas too, like substance use disorder, diabetes, 
PTSD, asthma, and hypertension. Uh, we find that it's easy enough for providers to understand. It helps to reduce administrative burden. And so that's a model that seems to work well. And again, we're always measuring. Um, we recently launched a uh, value-based program for doulas. We know that doulas make an incredible difference in the experience for black and brown birthing people around birth outcomes and the patient, you know, the experience that they have, right, going through the healthcare delivery system. Um, so we think that that will work well. We don't have results yet because literally just launched very recently. Um, but it gives us, again, another opportunity to address equity because we know that birth outcomes have such uh, disparate outcomes depending on your race. Um, and then lastly, I will touch on the fact that we have a, um, a substance use disorder bundle that we put in place uh, that has shown improvement year over year as well. Um, the improvements fall in three areas, initiation of alcohol and other drug abuse or dependence treatment, engagement of alcohol and other drug abuse or dependent um, treatment. So initiation and engagement is, are two important things to look for. And then um, adult access to care, because we're thinking about the whole person and the fact that when someone has a diagnosis of substance use disorder, there's often a number of medical complexities, depending on the length of use, that can also uh, be problematic. So we have more, but those are my uh, top ones to share that show kind of the breadth of how value-based or alternative payment models can be used. And the fact that when measured and providers are supported to engage, they, we are transparent with data exchange and information um, and provide um, other contexts and supports. So everything doesn't sit on just the provider to resolve that we can see progress on um, quality outcomes. Marshall? Yeah, thanks, Karen. I'm gonna point out two, two areas so one is that some of the most interesting work is happening in state Medicaid programs. Uh, you have the 50 states, so you have like 50 state laboratories in a sense. And uh, some of the states that people uh, tend to look at are, are Oregon, Minnesota, uh, Massachusetts, North Carolina. And, and what they all have in, in common in, in, or you know, their subsets for different aspects are that they're, they're, they're addressing broadly medical and social factors that drive outcomes. They're trying to think about more flexible funding so that the health and relief organizations plans have more flexibility with like uh, the use of the funds. And then as Michael Phillips had mentioned, like uh, they're, they're, um, some are doing things with um, equity-based performance metrics, which are then rewarded for attainment, as well as some are uh, risk-adjusting payment for uh, a social risk. And so, you know, one example is uh, some Oregon, they have this thing called CCOs, which are basically ACOs. And um, evidently, like the governor for many years, when he gave a health talk, would have a picture of a uh, air conditioner. Uh, the, the example, the air conditioner being that, like, well, you know, you could use Medicaid funds to uh, pay for an air conditioner because it could lead to like a decrease in the emergency department visits or hospitalization. So an example of the flexible funding or the um, Minnesota's Medicaid uh, director, uh, Nathan Shamillo. Uh, he specifically calls out then like uh, racism as one of the drivers of inequities. So he, he talks about then, well, what, what are you doing in terms of health plans regarding um, authentically engaging communities and partnerships and, and hearing the community voice? Uh, so that's, that's, those are some examples. Um, the other point I'll make is that like, so I, I co-direct a, a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation program called Advancing Health Equity, Leading Care, Payment and Systems Transformation. 
we're working with 12 state teams and a team consists of a state Medicaid agency, a Medicaid managed care organization, uh, a couple frontline health care delivery organizations and uh, a CBO or, or more. And the point I want to make about that is that um, you had to individualize. And so like, like when you look at, for example, at the heat model, it's a fairly general model, right? And, you know, parts of it probably need to be more detailed, but parts of it probably need to remain generic because it isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all approach. And so, um, but but having said that, there are some principles that everyone has to sort of start with. So, um, you know, what, what um, you know, Michael Patwell said a little bit earlier was, well, you know, so you're going to need to look at data in terms of like trying to identify uh, where the disparities are. You need to do a root cause analysis in partnership with the community to understand what are the drivers of the inequities. Your care transformation should address those root cause drivers. Otherwise, you know, you're not addressing the problem. And then payment, again, it's not payment for payment's sake, but it's the payment that supports and incentivizes those type of care delivery systems and transformations that address those medical and social needs to improve outcomes and advance health equity. So it does devolve down to, you know, in some ways, a relatively simple set of principles, which are then complicated to operationalize and practice. But that's part of the individualization. And, you know, every market's a little bit different and the players and stakeholders are a little bit different. But they do devolve down to like the basic principles that are in the various heat documents and guidance principles. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> one more point, um, you know, oftentimes people tend to focus on the technical parts, which are important. But um, rapidly, people will reach a wall unless they address what I would call the culture of equity. So in other words, when it comes down to it, you know, unless people truly value and, and prioritize and then do things like resourcing equity, then you're not going to get very far. So it gets into the discussion like, well, you know, what does equity mean to people? How are we going to address our racism and all? Uh, and so like one of our states, um, really good state, both their Medicaid agency and their health plan, they actually had us do two hour sessions with them where like half of it was like some general equity training and then like half it was breakout where they start to brainstorm well where they go from there regarding the culture of equity can piece. But in, in practice, it's equally important as all the technical stuff we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I wish we could have more time uh, with both Marshall and Karen, uh, but we're going to wrap up here. Yeah, I'd just like to thank you both for the work you're doing, uh, the work of advancing health equity for the whole nation and being that advisory uh, beacon for everybody. We're, we are watching. We are going to be going to your website often and making sure that we invite you back again. So thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for all the commentary. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the healthcare IT communities connect, collaborate, and create solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association on our website, wedi.org. Thank you for joining us and be safe.